Okay, good evening everybody. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. Um, just before we start, I'd just like to remind you that university staff um, throughout much of the United Kingdom are involved in a very important dispute with our employers about uh, security and retirement. And I know that um, the academic union would very much appreciate any support people wanted to give it, um, either by writing to the employers, uh, universities UK, or to local vice-chancellors. The LSE is in a rather unusual situation since it narrowly missed out on the government's newly legislated turnout requirement um, and, as a result, is not able to lawfully be involved in industrial action. But there should be no doubt that the staff at this institution and uh, what they think about this issue um, of the large numbers of people who voted, almost 90% voted to support uh, our trade union in this dispute. So this is, this is not a dispute in which there's any controversy amongst members of staff, but it is, uh, as a result of this unusual law, not possible for the LSE to be engaged in industrial action. So having said that, I'm very pleased to introduce our speaker, uh, Peter Fraze. Uh, Peter describes himself as a lapsed sociologist. I'm not sure what that means about sociology. Um, and he studied at Chicago and at CUNY, that the City University of New York Graduate Centre, and he's published scholarly articles on, on work and on working life. Peter's now the editor of the Jacobin magazine, um, some of you may have seen this. This is a very interesting, um, reasonably new um, uh, journal that uh, comes out of uh, New York and has made a significant impact and certainly shows that the age of, of ma thoughtful magazines is, is far from over. And if you look in its pages, you'll see much of his latest writing there. His most recent work, as you'll have seen as you come in, is Four Freedoms. Futures. For futures, for futures, not for freedom. I'm, no, I'm not really taking down the resident. There you are, there was. That's been and gone. Uh, for futures, with the brave subtitle "Life After Capitalism," um, and it was published by uh, Verso. Um, if you'd like to get a copy afterwards, Peter will be staying here after the lecture and be be happy to inscribe your copy. So, so feel free to come up and do that afterwards. Um, he's going to be talking tonight about some of those themes, but developing them a bit further. So Peter will be talking for about 45, 45 50 minutes, I think, and, oh, yes. and then uh, plenty of time for questions and discussion. But before he starts, can you join me in welcoming our speaker, Peter Fraze? Uh, all right. Wow, it's a great crowd. Thanks, everybody, for... Uh, coming to see me. Um, just one slight clarification. I'm not the editor of Jacobin Magazine. I'm merely one of the I editorial edit. board members uh, and have been since its founding, but I am not solely responsible, so whatever uh, article you want to complain about, I do not take responsibility for. Um, in any case, um, again, thanks for coming, and I want to also reiterate uh, what Professor Archer said about the ongoing strike in the universities and its importance. I was very careful to make sure before I came here that I was not going to be undermining or being perceived as undermining a very important strike, a very important struggle uh, for the rights of the faculty and staff that are currently striking for their livelihoods and especially for their pensions. Uh, the talk I'm about to give is going to be mostly about automation uh, in the context of production and the labor market. Teaching is one of those things that 
is not likely to be substantially automated anytime soon, no matter what certain uh, hype might tell you. And is also, I think, one of those things that in, in the future that I will hopefully point at at a later point uh, in this talk, let me put it this way. People who teach, uh, people I know in the UK, people I know at my, in, back home in the United States who teach do so because they find it fulfilling, because they're passionate about it, because they feel that they're serving their students and doing something that is fundamental to the production and the reproduction of our life and our society. And they might do it even without a wage if we lived in a world where doing what you wanted to do was not tied to the need to earn a wage and make a living. However, we do not live in that world, and therefore I wish... Uh, all victories to the UCU and to everyone who is striking and struggling. Uh, and I've uh, done my best to, to make sure that I'm not going to be scabbing on them by giving this talk. Anyway, with that out of the way, oops, how do I, now do I, how do I get to my, to my slides? All right, time for some robots. Um, as Professor Archer uh, suggested, I was invited to give this lecture largely on the strength of my book, Four Futures, and that book was an attempt to blend social science and science fiction in order to address the issues of economic inequality and ecological crisis that confront us today. So I attempted to look at, you know, to what extent can we replace labor with machines? To what extent can we overcome the climate crisis and the other ecological crises that confront us? And to what extent will changes in technology and that climate crisis be filtered through a world that either becomes more egalitarian or less egalitarian? But I'm not exactly here to talk about that. I've given many talks on that, and we can talk about it in the Q&A, if you like, uh, because I'm going to address something that functioned more as a premise in my book, something that was asserted more than it was argued for. And that was the idea of some kind of perfect automation. In other words, that we could develop technologies that provided for all our needs with next to no human interaction. And the figure I use for this uh, is, if you're familiar with the show uh, Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation, is a device called the Replicator. The Replicator is a device uh, that they have when they're flying around in their spaceships that they walk up to and they voice activated and say, in the words of Captain Jean-Luc Picard, tea, Earl Grey, hot. And then the cup of tea materializes. Uh, It doesn't require a tea farmer or a distribution network or a cup manufacturer. It's just materializing to presumably then be recycled again afterwards. And that premise allowed me to explore a number of other important questions and I think to think about the tendencies in our present society that point in more and less optimistic directions for the future in light of automation and in light of the ecological crisis. But the premise, the premise of total automation was intentionally meant as a kind of literary or social theoretic device rather than an argument. So for this talk, since I was asked to and since I agreed to focus on the questions of automation and labor, for this talk I want to argue with my premise, essentially. So here are the three three parts that I'm going to go through in, in doing this talk. The first has to do 
with what I'm calling the contradictions of capitalist technology, and particularly the relationship that the left has to the technologies of production and their relationship to labor. In other words, there's sort of more optimistic and dystopian views, you might say, of capitalist technology. There's more optimistic or pessimistic views about how much we might salvage from the world we live in now in some post-capitalist society when we might enter. So I want to talk about that. Then, after highlighting the long history of anxieties over automation (coughs) and labor-saving technology, because I think it's important to contextualize the debates we're having today, I'm going to come to our contemporary wave of research and media coverage, which are suggesting that the robots are coming to take our jobs or maybe take over the world, and I'm going to address the uh, debates over this question and the apparent lack of evidence for it in economic statistics. After offering my own view on whether or not the robots are coming or should come, I'm going to close with my thoughts of about a labor politics in our present period, and particularly the, what I'm calling a labor politics of technology, an approach to uh, technological change that is rooted not, in fact, in debates about technology, but in debates about labor and struggles over labor. So to begin with, we have the what I'm thinking of as sort of the two souls or the two sides of uh, left, ana- left theory and left critique when it comes to technology and the labor process. And I'm coming mostly from a Marxist tradition here, although not entirely. Uh, we have on the left here Captain Jean-Luc Picard of Star Trek. Uh, the, that is the post-scarcity utopian world. And on the right we have Agent Smith from The Matrix, the world in which we become simply slaves of the machines and technology simply subordinates us and dehumanizes us. Um, For the first perspective, I'm, I'm going to uh, one of my favorite socialists, Oscar Wilde, uh, in, who wrote The Soul of Man Under Socialism in the 19th Century. And in a somewhat provocative and, depending how you read it, somewhat offensive statement, he said, the fact is that civilization requires slaves. The Greeks were quite right there. Unless there are slaves to do the ugly, horrible, uninteresting work, culture and contemplation become almost impossible. Human slavery is wrong, insecure, and demoralizing. But on mechanical slavery, on the slavery of the machine, the future of the world depends. This is the view of technology that says the problem is simply that all of these labor, these machines, these robots, these factories, these algorithms, they're owned by the few, which is why I named this talk, Who Owns the Robots? The problem is simply to take it from them and turn those technologies to human liberation, liberation of all of us, lightening the burden of labor so that we can all, you know, live the life of Oscar Wilde other than the part where he gets persecuted and thrown in prison and that part. But um, the general idea here is that we can separate uh, what is sometimes called in the Marxist tradition the forces of production and the relations of production. So one of the most well-known expositions of this concept is the uh, philosopher G.A. Cohen's uh, book, Marxist theory of history, a defense, in which he makes a very sort of strict distinction between these 
things. The forces of production are the machines, they're the technology. The relations of production are the fact that most people own nothing and have to sell their labor to survive and have to work for anyone who will hire them, while a small number of people own those forces of production and use them to make profit in any way that they can. And this way of looking at things leads to a perspective that says, basically, capitalism's job is to, as it's sometimes said, ripen the productive forces, to develop them to the point where they hold out the possibility of this post-scarcity world. And then it's time for the revolutionary movement, the socialist movement, to come along and take over those technologies, whether by nationalization or whether by turning them into worker cooperatives or or something else. And that's, you know, it has its modern versions in other works, such as that of uh, Alex Williams and Nick Cernicek, uh, whose in book Inventing the Future came out uh, in the last few years, where they, they identify with what's called uh, accelerationism sometimes, which is, implies the idea that we accelerate the capitalist mode of production to the point where we can take those forces of production and turn them to non-capitalist ends. Uh, to quote from their uh, manifesto on accelerationism, accelerationists want to unleash latent productive forces. In this project, the material platform of neoliberalism does not need to be destroyed. It needs to be repurposed towards common ends. The existing infrastructure is not a capital stage to be smashed, but a springboard to launch towards post-capitalism. Now, there is another side that critiques this. I've sometimes seen it called, I've been called it myself, it's called Jetsonism. If it's based on the cartoon, The Jetsons, uh, originally in the 60s and then later in the 80s, based on uh, George Jetson, who lives in a world of flying cars and works two hours a week, and his job is to push a button. And strangely enough, the nuclear family persists, even though somehow the wage labor has been eliminated. That being said, this is this idea that we can simply transition smoothly from where we are now to a world where most people have to work little, if at all, uh, without fundamentally challenging the structure, the material, the industrial, the post-industrial structure of the economy. Uh, and this is challenged on partly on the ground that it may be ecologically impossible, that it, you know, it that it's inconsistent with building toward the the world that we need that we need to live in if we're going to get off of carbon and we're going to deal with climate change and we're going to not just burn ourselves all up. But there's another point that's sort of internal to the analysis of the capitalist mode of production itself, which says that, it, that the, the forces relations dualism, as I would call it, this idea that there's the forces of relations over here and the relations of reductions over here, right? There's the machinery here and the class struggle here. That doesn't really work. And you can find this in, in Marx, uh, in Marx and Engels in the Manifesto, owing to the extensive use of machinery and to division of labor, the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character and consequently all charm for the workman. He becomes an appendage of the machine and it is only the most simple, most monotonous, and most equally easily acquired knack that is required of him. So the idea here is that what's really happening is technology is being used not primarily to liberate people from labor, but it's designed specifically, as Harry Braverman in the 1970s says in Labor and Monopoly Capital, to dissolve the labor process as a process con- conducted by the worker and reconstituted as a process conducted by management, so Taylorism, the assembly line, all of these kinds of things. And so people from this tradition tend to think you can't, uh, to paraphrase what Marx said about the state in his writings on the Paris Commune, you can't just take up the machinery of capitalism ready-made and 
turn it to your own purposes. It has to be reconstructed and maybe deconstructed. And so people who are drawn in this direction tend toward ideas like localism or even degrowth in some of the ecological arguments, this idea of kind of sort of dismantling the industrial structure we have rather than accelerating into kind of a post-scarcity future, the way some others would say. So I'm going to get in... I'm going to get in a bit to the argument that we need to combine these two approaches in a sense, that we need a politics to combine them. But first, I have to make a bit of an extended empirical detour, and this gets to me attacking the premise of my own book in a sense. Uh, there are, there's been this flood of research and journalism about the coming wave of automation that has been out there, and is that people, you, know, you see it in the papers, you see it in journals, you see it everywhere. The robots are coming, the algorithms are coming. Uh, there are two major issues with it, however. One is that it um, portrays this thing as historically unique, um, something whereas it's really something that is kind of a recurring feature of capitalist economies. Um, and the second is it's not clear that it's actually happening. So first, the his- quick historical tour. These, of course, would be Luddites uh, smashing uh, machinery. This is the, they gave their name to what is now the epithet uh, most commonly hung on workers who are critical of technological changes in the workplace. And as Eric Hobsbawm and other historians of the Luddites have shown, they really get a bad name because Luddism is not primarily about being for or against technology, even though it's still run out, you know, it's run out by various industry groups and so on. They give out Luddite awards and things like this in Silicon Valley to indicate you know, people who are just against progress and against technology. But, and this is a theme that I will return to, these questions that are posed as questions about being for or against technology are really about labor. They're really about the power of labor and they're about control over the means of production. Luddites smash machines as a means of leverage over employers who are trying to throw them out of work. And in that context, it was a completely rational thing to do, just as it was completely rational when they also went and smashed up the employer's house. These were simply tactics. They were not judgments about uh, the value in some larger abstract sense of being able to spin more with less labor. Nevertheless, uh, they, by and large, defeated, according to a McKinsey report in 2017, Almost all sewing jobs, which are about the closest we can get to, to this kind of stuff, or can be automated with current technologies. Um, so that's these, this is some stuff that's like on the, on the almost totally automated end of things today. Now we can follow this along to, you know, as through, the, through the years. Uh, here we have another automation anxiety of the mid-19th century. This would be John Henry, the steel-driving man. Uh, I don't know how familiar people are with this folktale uh, over here in the United States. It's quite well known. Um, John Henry um, significantly is a former uh, slave. He's a, he's a black man. He's a former slave in the mid-19th century, according to the legend. Historians have argued about what, if any, reality there is to it. But he has gotten out of, uh, bo- out of bondage, out of slavery, not Oscar Wilde's slavery of the machine, but the slavery of the human, and become a free laborer. Of course, free, as Marx says in the double sense, uh, free of bondage, but also free of any ability to make his living other than to sell it to an employer. 
And he becomes a worker on the railroad. The story goes, he's, they're building a railroad tunnel in West Virginia. And along comes the steam-powered drill. And in the legend, John Henry races against the machine, races to show that he can work harder than the steam-powered drill. He wins the race and then drops dead. Weirdly enough, this, was, this uh, folk tale is prominently used in one of the books of the present wave of automation anxiety by uh, Eric Brunjelson and uh, Andrew McAfee of MIT with their book Race Against a Machine, in which they imply that it's somehow possible now, even though we are facing this sort of similar dynamics to John Henry, to outrace the machine. Although when you get to the end of their book, it turns out that it's just like better education and training or something. They don't actually have any answers. So this is sort of indicative of the weird disconnects that afflict this literature. And so moving on, try to quicken the pace, but here's the 1920s version of this. This is from Fritz Lang's Metropolis. And here you have that sense of the quote that I gave from Marx and the quote I gave from Braverman of the person as the cog in the machine, where rather than directing the productive process, you become an appendage of it. And this, of course, was horrifying to many people, but there were also those, such as the Italian futurists, who kind of celebrated. They celebrated the speed and the power of machines, uh, and then eventually became sympathizers of fascism, supporters of fascism, and supporters of war. And I would say that there's a bit of a, you know, there's a bit of a resonance with some of the more extreme uh, accelerationist arguments, um, which is not to say that, you know, Alex Williams and Nick Cernicek or anyone else in sort of the left of this is, you know, on the verge of becoming a fascist, uh, although one of the people who is most associated with the idea of accelerationism, Nick Land, a uh, former British academic now living in China, has essentially gone over to a right-wing so-called neo-reactionary position that values hierarchy and, you know, celebrates kind of the acceleration of capitalism without regard for human consequences. And so that's a sort of, uh, that's a sort of dark side to, you know, the, or the way we perceive automation. We may, you know, we go back, we go to the 70s, we get the same thing. This time it's the, you know, those, the Ford plants, the auto plants, other big manufacturing plants, the big robots are coming in. And this has actually two aspects. Again, with the two-sided aspect of automation, partly it just leads to speed up. It leads to more injuries. It leads to more deaths. Uh, it's not necessarily all about actually replacing human labor. It's just about sort of exploiting it more. But it is also the case that there's been a massive decline in the amount of human hours it's required to build a car, which is why uh, revolutionary socialists in Detroit in the 1970s, particularly associated with the uh, League of Revolutionary Black Workers and later on the League of Revolutionaries for a New America, looked at this and said that, you know, they fought against the speed-ups that were happening in the plants, but they also looked toward a kind of post-work future and an idea of, okay, what can we demand that's not just protecting the jobs that we have or trying to, you know, scrape for some other job? How can we sort of demand our place in some kind of a post-work future? So that, to me, is the interesting part of that. Um, we get to the 1990s version of this, uh, which comes with the end of the Cold War, uh, the, out, the emergence in our lexicon of words like downsizing and outsourcing. Um, there's an emphasis on the role of computers and computerization in the, 
diminution of the need for human labor in books like these that I have up here. Jeremy Rifkin's The End of Work, which is kind of a popular futurist work. Michael Moore's Downsize This, which is more of a kind of populist response to the hollowing out of the industrial core in the United States. Or Stanley Aronowitz's and William DeFazio's The Jobless Future, which takes more of a radical and a Marxist perspective, you know, which I will also return to about uh, challenging what's called in the subtitle of this book the dogma of work and suggesting that if I'll put it this way, the title of the book is often misinterpreted as a prediction of the jobless future. It's actually an argument for the jobless future. It's an argument that uh, we should be finding ways to live without jobs. Um, but this is, yeah, this is the period where sort of computerization becomes uh, central to this discourse, although it's not the beginning of that discourse. As far back as 1948, Norbert Wiener, who's associated with the field of cybernetics most prominently, was saying about computers, these new machines have a great capacity for upsetting the present basis of industry and of reducing the economic value of the routine factory employee to a point at which he is not worth hiring at any price. As it turns out, it's not just the routine factory employee, and that brings us to our present situation. Uh, Here you have... Uh, Watson. I don't know how many people are familiar with Watson. This is the supercomputer developed by IBM some years back, and its first public um, debut was uh, to compete on the game show Jeopardy. On the left of this picture is Ken Jennings, one of the greatest Jeopardy contestants of all time. Next to him is a machine that has been programmed to answer trivia questions. And the machine won. And, of course, that's sort of a gimmick, but what it reflects is a period in which people are trying to develop technologies that can uh, do things like scan medical records or legal records, even write, you know, simple journalistic stories. And so part of what I think drives the current wave of automation anxiety is that the people being affected are those who are the ones writing the stories about it. It's the sense that things that people thought were not automatable uh, now are. Now, at this point, um, before I sort of of go on, one could make the point that once we get into kind of this kind of computer, really computer-based type of automation, um, there's a material, there is a material other side to that, the actual... uh, chips and the motherboards and the machines are built somewhere. Um, But even there, we see, for example, uh, in China, where Foxconn, which manufactures a lot of Apple's components for iPhones and things like that, uh, has moved in the direction of robotizing its factories, uh, partly in response to the wave of suicides a few few years back uh, in response to its brutal labor conditions. And to a certain extent, um, this, uh, you know, low-wage labor is moving down to even, you know, to poorer countries, you know, to Vietnam, to, to Africa, but there's sort of a limit to how much you can do that, and I think in some ways the, uh, the sense that we are gradually automating everything was a bit delayed by the end of the Cold War when this massive infusion of uh, deregulated economies and cheap labor from the collapse of the Soviet Union and the capitalist road in China sort of flowed in and kind of delayed what now I think is still the ongoing process of uh, replacing human labor with machinery or 
making human labor more efficient, which is the same thing, uh, one way or another. So that leads us to this. Uh, this is just one example of the recent literature from Martin Ford, a business writer, in his book Rise of the Robots, where he says, we are in all likelihood at the leading edge of an explosive wave of innovation that will ultimately produce robots geared toward nearly every conceivable commercial, industrial, and consumer task. And there are many others I could cite. The entrepreneur named Andrew Yang, who is uh, trying to run for president of the United States on the basis of this, pl- of this uh, argument and the need to address it. Um, Brynjolfsson and McAfee of MIT, who I mentioned earlier. Popular writers like Farhad Manju at Slate, Kevin Drum at Mother Jones, all have the same general sense that even if we're just seeing the latest in, as I showed, waves of displacement of human labor, that somehow this time is different. And so you'll see things like um, there's a study, uh, for example, called The Future of Employment, How Susceptible Are Jobs to Computerization uh, by Drs. Michael Fry, uh, Dr. Michael Osborne from, the Oxford, from Oxford University and Dr. Carl Benedict... Uh, Michael Osborne of Oxford University and Carl Benedict Fry of, of Oxford Martin School, sorry, which estimates that 47% of jobs in the U.S. are at risk of being automated in the next 20 years. Now... You see this study everywhere, which should already tell you that there's something a little bit weird here. And also the methodology they used is based on, a, on statistical sort of assumptions that are, are, can be challenged. I'm not going to get into that, although I think people can ask about it if they want. But the thing that people come back to when, people, when there's this huge hype cycle about automation is that... Oops, where's my, ah, where's my thing? Oh, there it is. Um, is that... Okay. Is this. If... Automation is happening. It should show up, it's argued, in statistics on productivity, meaning the amount of stuff that we can make, you know, the general measure of how much stuff we produce per unit hour, you know, per unit of work. And the reality is that that's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing massive accelerations in productivity. In fact, we're seeing declines, as you can see here. In the most recent period covered in this data, 2007 to 2013, it's only 1.7%, um, slower than the previous periods going back to 1990, and much slower than in the boom years, uh, the post-war years, up till the slump in the early 70s. And so this is sort of a, considered in mainstream economic circles a puzzle. Why is this happening? Um, what, what is causing this uh, sluggish productivity? Um, in other words, where are the robots? Um, maybe they're like this guy. This is uh, from a robotics exhibition, uh, and this is a robot who has just fallen down, which is something that happens quite often uh, in the, at these things. Um, which, to be fair, you know, walking is both a very difficult and not the most important thing you can do with robots, but nevertheless. Uh, so there are various explanations that people have for this. Um, there's, a, there's a recent symposium in a journal called The International Economy that goes through you know, sort of surveys a bunch of economists from different perspectives and business people from different perspectives to give different explanations for this productivity puzzle. Why is, if we're supposedly getting all these amazing new technologies, why are they not being reflected in increasing productivity? And there's various arguments. So one is that productivity is not measured very well. Um, That usually comes down to an argument that we don't realize sort of what's called quality improvements, that like our computers and our phones and so on are like of such higher quality that 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 reflects increased productivity even if we all still just have one phone. Now that doesn't quite bear on what we're interested in here because then that doesn't mean we're actually decreasing. Then it sort of takes productivity away from what 
I'm interested here in using productivity to explain, which is actually the relationship between human labor and output. There are some people uh, like Robert Gordon being the most uh, important who basically just say that our, innovation, our recent technological innovations kind of suck, at least for economic purposes, that compared to things like the internal combustion engine or electricity, we just don't have anything that rates in terms of its effect on the economy. And, that, and, they, and basically, that we, there's not a whole lot we can do to make new good innovations appear, so we're sort of, sort of stuck. There's arguments for negative innovation, like the idea that learning new technologies takes up so much time that it decreases productivity, um, that things like smartphones or social media cause people to waste so much time at work that that decreases productivity. Um, there's an argument also for a delayed impact that these things just simply haven't hit yet. Uh, some of the evidence for that or the you know, reasons to think it might be true come from, for example, the Great Depression in the 1930s, which turned out to be a time of very serious economic innovation, but it was not it didn't really reflect itself in economic statistics until later on when those innovations were actually able to be implemented economically. And then there's sort of some things that say, well, maybe we need more research investment or tax cuts or different immigration policies. Um, maybe it's demographics, just the aging population means that we're going to have an inherently you know, less productive economy. Uh, however, I'm going to now turn it back to my kind of less policy wonk and more Marxist side and suggest that there's another explanation. And it's an explanation that's so obvious that to avoid it, I think, requires a massive ideological effort. And that is the reason that productivity growth is weak is because workers are weak. And I'll put it like this. Um, it's, it's sort of an, a 101, and it's like economics 101 thing, right? If you're, you know, to simplify the most I can, if you are an employer or an owner who is looking at the option between a machine or a human who can do the same thing, all things being equal, you take the one that's cheaper. Workers are cheap, you choose the worker. Workers are expensive, uh, you choose the machine. Now, this is a bit of an awkward point for some people because often uh, sort of pro-labor arguments and sort of pro-leftist arguments want to deny the idea that, uh, that, that, this, that basically improving the condition of workers leads to them being replaced by machines. But I think it's sort of unavoidable. So I give here, here's a couple of different ways of looking at the question. If you prefer the more florid uh, language of Ita 1960s Italian autonomous Marxism, you have Mario Tronti that after a partial defeat, even following a simple contractual battle, capital is violently pushed to having to come to terms with itself, i.e. to reconsider precisely the quality of its development, to repropose the problem of the relationship with the class adversary. And he goes on to, to specifically emphasize that this involves the reorganization of the productive process. So it's the workers who are the driving force here, essentially forcing innovation on capitalists who would otherwise be able to sort of stumble on us before. And a simpler and sort of more contemporary phrasing from the heterodox economist J.W. Mason of CUNY and the Roosevelt Institute is simply, again, this is from the symposium that I was discussing earlier, the incentive to substitute capital for labor is stronger when workers are scarce and wages are rising. This is the economics 101. Um, and nevertheless, this is, in the language of mainstream modern economics, essentially the argument for class struggle being the motor of technological innovation. And so, here we are. 
Uh, this is a version of a graph that many have probably seen, tracing the relationship between productivity and hourly compensation. This is for the United States, but you can find similar patterns in many of the rich countries at least. And despite the slowdown in productivity growth that I showed earlier, it's clearly the case that productivity has continued to rise quite dramatically, while hourly compensation adjusted for inflation has remained largely flat. So if you believe, as I've argued, that the incentive to to sort of replace humans with labor depends on how cheap and manipulable the human labor is, well, there you go. That, that gap on the right side is, uh, has to be a big part of the story. Uh, and it's why I think in debating these questions of what are robots and automation going to do, how should the left and labor respond to them, we have to consider this question of what role does the beating down of labor have, in fact, on holding back productivity growth, and what effect would strengthening of labor have, potentially, on the displacement of labor by technology? Because I sometimes think that the thing we should be most worried about is not the replacement of workers with machines, but the treatment of workers as machines. That's that second side of the uh, that, that dialectic of labor and technology as potentially liberatory, but if we become trapped within that machine, treated as though we are part of the machine, then that can be the worst thing of all. And so it leads me to my sort of concluding section, which I will be brief and glib, I'm afraid, but I'll do what I can, about what then can we do? And what way are we what way can we sort of relate to this dynamic, this dialectic, this potential for the struggles of labor to lead to, in fact, more rapid displacement of labor. Here you have a robot called Flippy. Uh, this was uh, this is a recently demonstrated for the first time uh, flipping burgers. And of course, this is very relevant, certainly in the United States, and I think here to struggles for the rights of fast food workers in the United States. It's the fight for $15 an hour wages, and you. You get a response often, both from the employer and from their ideological defenders, that says, well, if you fight for higher wages, we're just going to automate your job. So a former CEO of uh, McDonald's said about this, uh, you know, I told you in 2013 when the fight for 15 was still in the growth stage, I and others warned that union demands for a much higher minimum wage would force businesses and small profit margins to replace full-service employees with costly investments in self-service alternatives, such as self-checkout screens, and then burger-flipping robots, such as our friend uh, Flippy here. And I, this is where I think it's important to say that I basically, as I sort of basically agreed with, with uh, this Mr. Renzi, the former McDonald's CEO, that a stronger working class would be likely to lead to more rapid adoption of labor-saving technology, which on one level would seem to please the left as well as the bourgeois economists who are still fretting about stagnation in productivity. But just as, as we have seen throughout history in all the instances I described earlier, just because some jobs are lost to automation, that doesn't have to mean that overall employment declines. And indeed, the standard economist's response uh, to all these concerns about automation is that it simply frees up workers to do new things and hopefully better things and new lines of work open up and we'll find new jobs as you know, yoga instructors or something. Um, and I don't actually aim to debate that proposition, but rather to question its premise. That is the premise that 
creating more jobs is the desirable thing or the thing that we should, that we should be focusing on. So the question is not necessarily can we find jobs for people one way or another. But the question becomes, from a political standpoint, do people need work? And this is where we need to think about work as a bunch of different disarticulated things. There's work in the sense of wage labor for survival. And so that is the sort of narrow Marxist definition of if you do not have access to the means of production, you need to find someone who will pay you a wage because that is the only way you can survive. Then there's work as the sort of necessary labor of society. Whatever it is we collectively agree needs to be done, whether it's sweeping the streets or raising children. And then there's work as some kind of self-sacrificing but self-fulfilling activity, something that requires discipline but doesn't necessarily relate either to the wage uh, or to things we might think of as totally socially necessary. You might be a fantastic amateur chess player, and it's a lot of hard work, but it doesn't fit into the other two categories. And so the debates about what do we do about you know, the robots, if they are coming, and I've argued that perhaps with a rising tide of labor, they might come, even if they're not here yet. The question is, there's, is there some reason we need jobs as we understand them today? That is, somebody you report to, somebody who gives you orders, and then somebody who gives you a paycheck at the end of the week or at the end of the month. And there are people who argue from the right that the working class needs discipline and then they'll all just be, go off into becoming lazy drunks. From the left, there's the argument that people get their sense of dignity and self-worth from, from work and that therefore we need everyone to have jobs. Um, I tend to be fairly skeptical of that perspective. Um, in terms of the idea of the dignity of work, on the one hand, it depends a lot on the social and cultural context so in some ways, the insistence that, that paid work gives people dignity is a self-reinforcing argument. Um, there's a study, um, which I discuss in, in my book also, uh, which studied unemployed workers who were on the verge of the retirement age. This was in, this was in Germany, I believe. Um, and they sort of surveyed them, and they surveyed them before they hit the retirement age when they were unemployed. And they found, as you often find when you survey the unemployed, that they felt bad about it. They were depressed. They were unhappy. They just they felt kind of useless not being not having jobs. But then they hit the retirement age. Now they're no longer unemployed workers. Now they're retired. And it has magically magically all of a sudden it was, that felt a lot better. So these sort of cultural identity categories actually matter a lot, and that's why I think the cultural critique of the work ethic is important. I would also say that this sort of idea of the dignity of work is sort of requires a fetishization of wage labor and leaves aside all the unwaged labor such as household labor and care, you know, unpaid care work and child rearing and all and elder care and all of that predominantly done by women, um, which again, this is about sort of how we culturally code these things. Um, you know, so that's, there are these arguments that there's, there's some way we can make enough jobs to make up for whatever's lost to various technological dynamics. In the United States, certainly, and in other places, there's a trend on, among left heterodox economists for what's called the job guarantee, which essentially says that the government uh, will create, uh, basically, if they're the employer of last resort, as it's sometimes called, they'll create a job for you if you can't find one anywhere else. But the flip side of that is you are required to take it. Uh, that you are essentially the government. If no one else will hire you, then you have to go show up to your government job. So it's the job guarantee is really the job requirement. Um, so it strikes me as not a particularly progressive solution. Uh, and it also it 
it's sometimes justified on the grounds that there are actually things that are not being done that need to be done, such as infrastructure uh, repair and construction and so on, which I agree is true. But I think it's a very bad idea to mix together two completely different objectives, one of which is to support people's incomes and their livelihoods, and the other of which is to actually do something substantively that we think needs to be done. Um, which is brings me toward, toward the end here, and sort of my very quick uh, politics on this question, and sort of to sum up what I've trying to, trying to point towards. Um, point one, uh, looking two steps ahead. This means that as I was sort of mentioning earlier, we talk about labor struggles that may result in the elimination of jobs uh, and accept that and then also try to figure out how we can, in the immediate term, struggle to strengthen workers and also figure out how to compensate those who are displaced by technological changes because I don't think it's really feasible or desirable to focus political energy on attempting to block all of these ways of sort of avoiding... Uh, you know, in sort of Tronti's sense, the, that confrontation with labor through technical means. The second one, which I'm calling uh, emancipation versus exploitation, has to do, again, with this distinction between technology that potentially can set us free and technology that only exists to control us and dominate us. And, we, and I think that's also where our, a lot of our contemporary mainstream discussions of technology run aground because they become about are you for or against technologies? Is this good technology or bad technology? And the question has to be how it's used. Um, there's, you know, there's things like, you know, the fact that I can check in for my flight on my smartphone is uh, ultimately good, even though it would be better if the airlines were nationalized. Um, but then the technology that allows uh, delivery companies to monitor every movement of their workers to see exactly how long they stopped, exactly how long it took them to deliver a package, to ding them, if they even waste a second. That's just a way of intensifying exploitation and squeezing out more labor, and we, sh- and we should understand that the politics of this does derive from that, about what is its effect on people and what is its effect on labor. And then finally, there's the question that gave, gave the title to this talk, which I stole from the Harvard labor economist Richard Freeman, who owns the robots. His, in his phrasing, it was, who owns the robots owns the world. And so we need to be talking about not just asking for sort of redistribution, but also how do we gain control over these technologies? And Freeman, for example, favors things like shares of capital shares, basically, in the companies that, uh, that are profiting, whether they're social media companies or whether they're Amazon or, you know, whatever. Um, the social wealth funds are an idea that's been proposed sometimes as a way of essentially, in the name of the public, investing in and profiting from and redistributing the, um, this, this activity that's going on, which is an interesting one to me because it moves almost in the direction of where European social democracy was in the late 70s and early 80s of things like the wage earner funds in Sweden, which essentially were designed to gradually socialize uh, private capital by the, um, the unions essentially buying shares in companies and and gradually turning them into public uh, property. Needless to say, the ruling class did not like that at all and fought tooth and nail against it and eventually destroyed it. But it is that ultimately that question of should Facebook be nationalized, for example, uh, is, you know, is it so important or socialized even in some multinational way because it's simply too important to be left in private hands. And, simp- and the, ultimately we are by providing things like Facebook with our data, we are ultimately producing much of its value. 
Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, getting up to, to 45 minutes here, so I'll just uh, close with my, uh, my extremely good manifesto for the politics of uh, labor and automation. And so, again, strong unions and worker protections with the understanding that strengthening the working class ultimately can lead to more automation and that we should not shy from that but instead should build it into our politics. Uh, rather than trying to create more jobs, something like shorter hours paired with something like a universal basic income, which would guarantee any, everyone some minimal income, some minimal level of living, uh, is a way to try to turn the wealth of our society into time and wealth for us rather than for endless accumulation for the rich. And finally, yes, uh, expropriate the expropriators. Ultimately, we have to own the robots, which means that we can... They, both in a, the sense of the physical machines and in the sense of the algorithm, these things cannot be left the private property, ultimately, of a tiny elite. And, and so that is, the, that is ultimately my sort of quick overview of my attempt to wrestle with and critique and come out the other side of the premise of the book, which I hope you all buy and read and give to your friends and so on, and how we can come to uh, live together uh, in harmony with the robots. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, we've got um, about half an hour for questions and discussion. So let me just um, pause for a minute to see who wants to move, and then let's take some questions. So, who else would like to? Who would like to kick us off? Yes, and if I call you, can you just say who you are and where you're from, please, just so that we know. So this gentleman over here, please. All right. Uh, so why do you... I'm, I'm Jamie. I'm from London. Why do you think the wages stopped uh, rising in 1973 or thereabouts? Okay. Um, do you want me to just do them one by one, or do you want At to do... At the moment, let's All right. start. Yeah, so there are a number of... Explan- I mean, there are several explanations for that, and the specific timing of it had some things, things to do with things like the uh, shock in oil prices... But in general, that period is often called uh, by scholars like you know, David Harvey and many others the beginning of the neoliberal period. And what that period was was essentially the point where the post-war welfare states that had built strong unions and had built strong social benefits in, in Western Europe especially were hitting both economic and political crises in which there was a, both a – there was economic – Stagnation again, partly due to external factors and also political resistance against the power of the working class, which led to massive both economic crises followed by political crises, followed by defeat of many of the ruling parties and ruling movements in those places. And so, my brief explanation of what, what where that disjunction came from is essentially. Uh, labor was powerful enough to demand an increasing share of, of the, its, its, its share of rising productivity essentially until the 1970s, and then after that it was defeated and it was not able to do so. I mean, it's, I think it's important to recognize the graph I showed, you know, if you win it back farther, it's not a, like, it wasn't like a law of capitalism before the 1970s that, produ- that uh, the workers' share of uh, income would just sort of like rise with productivity growth. It was actually a feature of, you know, what's sometimes called the Fordist compromise between, you know, around World War II and the 1970s. Okay. 
Who, who else has a question? Everyone's been brought to a halt for a minute. Yep, Michael. Just, just wait and say who you are. Hi, my name's Michael. I do the political sociology MA here. Uh, I wanted to know, how do you think we'd pay for UBI? Do you imagine it to be a, a traditional tax and spend policy? Or are we looking at like positive money, printing money? Or is it because we own the robots? Is it because the state owns the robots? They can just accrue the income from that revenue. How, how are you thinking about that? This is a complicated question. Um, and it Better dep- make clear, UBI. Okay, so UBI is the universal basic income, which I mentioned, meaning the policy of the government transferring without condition to every person in the country uh, a fixed amount of money. Uh, so it's unlike other kinds of social cash benefits. It's not you don't have to apply for it. You don't have to qualify for it. You just get it. Everyone gets it, uh, no matter how rich or how poor you are. And this is one of the things that's become a more popular proposal in recent years on the left, but also in some cases on the right. And, of course, with something like that, the question does always arise, well, that's how do you pay for something like that? Partly, of course, it depends on what level you're talking about. Uh, universal basic income, the principle of it is only that it's a payment that goes the same to everybody. Uh, how high the payment is is not specified. So if it's low, and there are people in the U.K., for example, who have spent a lot of time working on this who suggest, at least in the beginning, some very low levels of basic income on the level of like only like 70 pounds a week or something, which is not much, but they at least argue would actually have some significant impacts on people at the lowest end of the income distribution. So, and that you can do without really huge changes in the financing. Now, if you're talking about larger basic incomes on the levels of you're paying thousands and you know pounds a year, you're getting close to the level where you could actually live off of this payment, then it becomes more complex. Now, to a certain extent, of course, there's more progressive taxation. To a certain extent, you can print money. That's going to depend on the country, obviously. Certainly in the United States, we could do it. Um, and then the the real kind of the real target, I think, ultimately is taxation of wealth. That's and that's very difficult, of course, because finding and getting a hold of wealth that can flee across national borders is very difficult. But ultimately, I think anybody who looks at the distribution of wealth, which is wildly more unequal even than the distribution of income, and looks at the scale of what would be necessary to have a real kind of robust, livable basic income, I think has to come to the conclusion that some Somewhere, somehow, you have to tax these hordes of enormous wealth. Thanks. Yep. Yeah, um, just wait for the microphone. Um, this. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks very much. Yeah. Uh, Alan Hooper. Yes. Um, I mean, Marx famously said that uh, capitalism would produce its own grave diggers, didn't he? But you rightly point out that in a sense what capital is, is, has been doing in the last 40 years since the mid-70s is, is digging its own grave by destroying the, the very labour movement that I think you quite rightly argue incentivizes them to develop and expand the means of production, the forces of production. Um, and clearly we've lived through this, this strange period reflected in the, the low productivity paradox, as you say. Now, what is the evidence that the labour movement is going to recover from this period since the 70s and 80s, we know that there's been growing pessimism about uh, uh, the future of the working class as an organised force. Are, are you confident that it can reassert itself, um, pressurise the capitalists, obviously, to re- renew their historic role of developing the forces of production, and then go on from that, as we were all home, I'm sure, uh, to the working class to take over the very means of production? Because I'm sure analysis is quite right. We've got to have momentum and uh, you know, progressive expansion of the, the power of the class, but the class has been, particularly as we know in the advanced capitalist world, 
been in retreat for now this for an extraordinarily long period, 30, 40 years really. Uh, do you look to China and elsewhere for an incentive and a uh, uh, return upturn of struggle? Uh, it's a, yeah, I mean, in part, yeah, in part I do look toward, uh, toward places like China and toward the global south. I mean, that is part of... It, there is massive amounts of labor unrest ongoing and labor organizing going on in China, and I think that is part of what drives uh, the, the, the trends toward uh, automation that we see now in China, that in fact these are not you know, the kind of incredibly cheap, docile workers of myths that we were often told about in the days when outsourcing was blamed for all of the sort of declines in manufacturing. So that's part of it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not one to say that uh, in the sense of capitalism producing its own grave diggers. I'm not one to say that it necessarily always produces the kind of the necessary uh, revolutionary subject at the right time. I do think, and I, and I don't want to understate the degree to which in places like the UK and in the United States, labor is extremely weak and is on the defensive. I think the thing now is that wherever we can go from here is going to have to be rooted in completely in a really a re- rebirth and a reconstruction of what like what we think of as the labor movement, who we think of as the leading forces in the labor movement, right? So there's still a tendency, at least that I find on the left, to say that you know to emphasize, to sort of fetishize things like industrial workers um, over something like the faculty and staff who are striking in the universities right now, or the school teachers in West Virginia who just won a massive strike in the United States in one of the most conservative states in the country. So, and then not to mention the efforts to struggle, kind of preca- to organize precarious workers, or you know, it's here, it's delivery drivers in the U.S., it's other kinds of you know gig economy workers. And I'm not to say that we aren't a long way from kind of going from the present efforts to the scale of labor movement that's needed, but I think it's that kind of, of uh, kind of modernized and creative thinking is that's, that's what's necessary and what's happening among the most sort of energetic forces uh, in labor organizing. Okay, can we have this woman here in the second row, please? Some people have suggested uh, addressing the balance between capital and labor by introducing a robot tax. And uh, given you suggest robots can be used for both emancipation and exploitation, it doesn't sound like you necessarily think we should be penalizing automation. So I was just wondering what your opinion on that su- the suggestion of, of a robot tax was. Yeah, that was a live issue in the French presidential election, mm. actually. Yeah, and I actually had a quote that I didn't end up reading in my talk from Bill Gates, who had got a lot of news coverage a while back when he suggested taxing robots. Obviously, Bill Gates, being rich, you know, Microsoft founder, gets a lot of attention for saying things like this. And he essentially said what a lot of rich people are saying now who are concerned about this, that, you know, everything is moving too fast and too many people are being displaced, and so we should slow it down by taxing robots. And my inclination is to say, well, maybe there are some, you know, maybe there are some things we, we should tax that are not actually beneficial innovations, but... When I hear it from sources like that, my first inclination is to say, well, we should be just be taxing Bill Gates and using that to uh, compensate for the displacement that's currently happening. Okay. Um, this person at the back, just keep your hand up to the microphone and don't forget to say who you are and where you're from. Hi, my name's Laura. Um, I'm a graduate student in international political economy here. Um, my question is to... I'm right here. Um, to respond... To respond to the question about who owns the robots and your discussion a bit at the end about ways that the state could stand up to big technology firms, do you feel that the state is is able to do that? Or have these big tech firms in Silicon Valley um, 
do they have enough structural and discursive power to resist any kind of state action on that on that front? I mean, I mean, discursive power is not one I'm good on. It's hard to kind of evaluate. I mean, there's always a question when we're getting at challenging the power of these really big and multinational firms about like how you can do this within the boundaries of one or even multiple countries. That's hard even in the United States, and it's even harder in a, in a smaller country. Um, the thing is, we haven't even really tried. And I think there's, it tends to be, people tend to overestimate how much, like how actually footloose a lot of these companies are. Um, I mean, the only reason, you know, the only reason that people can, that big U.S., big U.S. companies are, for example, and again, I've, I apologize for coming back to the U.S. case because it's the one that I know the best. I think this applies in a lot of ways to the U.K., which is in, you know, in some ways even more kind of top-heavy with uh, big money than the U.S. is, uh, that these companies like to, obviously they like to threaten that if you do anything to them, they will find ways to flee or move all their money or something. I think that's pretty wildly overstated. And that, in fact, it's their, their privileges are more reliant on the fact that, you know, decades of neoliberal governments have made it easy for them to not have their, their wealth taxed or their privileges challenged. Uh, it is a serious problem. I mean, not to get, get it wrong. I mean, I alluded to the issue of the wage earner funds and the minor plan and things in, you know, the late 70s and early 80s. And those things came to grief on uh, capital flight, you know. Uh, so it is ultimately... The problem is ultimately why this has to be kind of, this is going to be an international question. Um, but I do think certainly the big, some of the biggest economies can make some moves that would, um, that would make a difference. Okay. Um, yes, no, just, just, um, just keep your hand. Yep, there we go. Yes, hello. Um, Noam from Chile. I have two questions which are kind of related. The first one is, I, w- I find really interesting your argument that there's a virtuous cycle between raising wages, which uh, incentivize uh, using more capital and therefore more technological advance. And I was just wondering if you think that perhaps UBI would reduce the necessity and therefore the incentive to increase wages and end that, uh, that cycle, which could be important. And the second one is, without over-mystifying the role of work, but it seems that uh, a work is a natural place to socialize and to, 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 to organize. If people would start living of UBI and wouldn't find those places of socializing, how would you imagine that that society would organize, and especially if this is a dynamic play in which there's struggles to increase that UBI. Who, who would organize to increase that UBI if, if there aren't unions of people who are unemployed? So as to the relationship between basic income and wages and productivity, um, there, it depends on the way that the basic income is implemented. Uh, there, if it's a very, at a low rate, there are arguments that it would essentially become a sort of subsidy to low-wage employment because it would be possible for people to work for even lower wages uh, and, you know, top it up with their basic income, and then that would disincentivize productivity. On the other hand, you can also argue a basic income, especially if it's reasonably generous, puts workers in a better bargaining position, right? Because the assumption is even a relatively generous basic income in the, in, in, that we can imagine in the relatively near future is 
going to be low enough that people are going to still want to also take jobs on top of it. And one of the things that people argue for about the basic income is that unlike other kinds of benefits that you like lose when you get a job, you keep your basic income and then you can also get a job. But if you have the basic income to fall back on, you have a little more you know, breathing room to say to the boss, you know, I, you know, I need a razor, I want better conditions and to organize. And, you know, even if you get fired for trying to organize a union or something like that, you have something to fall back on. So in that case, it can actually intensify this dynamic of making workers kind of expensive and ornery and sort of pushing forward the dynamic that I'm talking about. As for work as a place to socialize, it's certainly true, but there's no reason that that has to be, or a place to organize, or a place to kind of be, sort of develop political consciousness. That's really true, but it doesn't have to be so, and I think it's probably decreasingly so, given the nature of the workplaces that a lot of people are in. You know, the traditional Marxist argument about the point of production is that the reason to, to organize there is because that's where you have the most ability to kind of disrupt the functioning of capitalism, and that can still certainly be true, but there's no reason uh, that, you know, this kind of people can't be doing this in like sort of the, you know, in the, on the residential side, for example, where they live, in the city, in the neighborhood. Um, this gets, of course, to also the politics of space, of urban space, of residential space, of what kinds of other opportunities people have to socialize, not to even mention, of course, you know, kinds of, you know, online sociality and things like that, which can be, I think, overstated, but I think are not nothing. It is, in fact, the case that people build communities and networks and politically efficacious forms also over the internet. So I can understand the concern, but I think it's, um, yeah, it's a concern, but it's, it's not, I think, I don't, I don't think that there's sort of no, I don't think it's impossible to imagine there being other ways for political collectivities to develop uh, that are not necessarily what we think of as the workplace, you know, or the factory floor or the shop floor or whatever. I mean, let me just ask you to follow up on that. I mean, yes, there's lots of other collectivities, but are there other collectivities that are in a position to put pressure on capitalist owners in the way that workplace collectivities are? I mean, unless you imagine these capitalist owners just disappearing, there's going to be a need to put pressure on them. And if lots of ordinary people are not in work anymore, these capitalists don't care about those ordinary people anymore. I mean, you might think about it by analogy with the world of war. Once upon a time in the early 20th century, conscription was required for armies. Consequently, working men and women got the vote about 100 years ago. Now they're not required, and that pressure isn't there anymore. Why isn't there an analogous danger in this case? I mean, there, there is. I mean, you are giving up, in a sense, um, one avenue of power. I'm, I tend to think, though, that there's that sometimes the emphasis on the point of production can be a bit of a fetish. Yes, it is one place in which uh, power, collective power is developed and which it's powerful. It's, it's very easy to disrupt, it's much easier to disrupt the functioning of the system of capital accumulation. However, the system of capital accumulation is not the workplace. It's a system of production and distribution and consumption. So it's not, if you, ha- you know, it's not clear to me necessarily that, uh, you couldn't sort of disrupt the the system by people blocking delivery trucks and shooting down delivery drones uh, any more you know, than you could by actually being in the, the factory that's manufacturing something. Uh, and you, just as you can disrupt the sort of cycle of... Uh, the sort of renter cycle of uh, house, land, you know, of land and housing accumulation by squatting buildings, right? There's there's many points in the system, I think, and I think it's important that we think about where those other points are because there will still be, of course, points where the sort of the point of production, in some sense, is where the action's at. Particularly when you look at 
the the systems we have now for kind of just-in-time delivery in Amazon and these massive things like the warehouse workers are now a huge uh, and they're being automated, but it's going to be a while before they completely automate them. So they're kind of a choke point. And the same thing with people who the you know the people who deliver packages to the you know to and from the docks. But we just have to be sort of thinking about all the parts of that system of production and distribution and consumption in terms because if you interrupt any part of it, really, then you've disrupted the accumulation of capital, which is the objective. Okay, yes. Uh, let's see, more questions. So uh, this, this gentleman's the shirt at the back. Hi, my name's Rory Smith. Um, you kind of alluded to the, I guess, the privilege of seeing workers fulfilling self-activity, that actually there's a, there's a class of people who can think about that right now, but for a long time, many people never got that privilege. You know, Yuval Harari, who's written books that are very popular right now, Sapiens and Homo Deus, he talks about the rise of the useless classes. And I wondered whether you might talk about, from a public policy perspective, what policymakers should be thinking about in terms of tackling that challenge when suddenly, potentially, with UBI and automation, you have a whole new swathes of people who, who do have to begin thinking about how you live a purposeful existence. It is, it is a concern, and it, it's a, one of the criticisms that's often raised specifically against the universal basic income is that it can create this divide between the people that have to, you know, useless class, as you put it, that has to survive on a basic income and a class of people who are still working for a wage and even, you know, even though part of their income also comes from a basic income, they would still perceive themselves as sort of, you know, supporting, you know, this kind of useless or parasitic class of people. And it is a danger, and it's, you know... That's why some people oppose basic income entirely. It's why I certainly think that things like the push for shorter hours are really important as part of this to try to push the to try to avoid that sort of bifurcation in that sense that there are because that of course is one of the things that broke down the you know the welfare states that were built in the mid twentieth century was the right wing attack that was able to perceive a certain class of people as parasites or scroungers. And others is kind of the you know the hardworking many, um, so you know some of that is is me is ameliorated by the fact that unlike other kinds of social benefits, basic income is something that literally benefits everyone. I mean, that's a bit of a fiction because the way these schemes are generally constructed, if you're rich, you technically get your basic income, but then it all gets taxed back because you are we have a progressive taxation system but it does at least ameliorate the problem somewhat but i do think things like trying to like shorter hours and trying to figure out ways in general to kind of reduce labor across the board and share it out rather than just relying on a kind of a, a payment that will sustain those who can't kind of find work at all is probably necessary Speak up, sorry. You do have people who can survive on basic income. Um, is there a role for state in giving them a sense of purpose to that existence? That one, I think, if it's... Well, because here's the thing. It's... Right, it's one thing if you sort of feel like you're being kind of warehoused as a poor person on the dole, but like, I mean, the history of the, I mean, this country is replete with wonderful artists and political activists and people that took the dole and did wonderful things with it. Um, you know, uh, I gave a talk in, uh, in Leeds a few weeks back, uh, and the title of it was from a famous crass song, Do They Owe Us a Living? Of course they fucking do. And 
the so I actually think there's a potential there for this to open up space for art, for politics, for carving out kinds of cooperative kinds of economic arrangements that aren't capitalist. Um, that's very exciting. It's not to say everyone would do that, but I'm I'm not that worried that people and. It, I'm not that worried that people will sort of have no way to find meaning. I do think it's important to have, for example, again, this gets back to the, the strike we've been talking about. Education is very important, and it's very important for education to have the role not of narrowly sort of credentialing people for work, but of actually allowing people to explore and develop their talents and their interests in order that, therefore, that time that you free up and that space that you free up when you have something like a basic income or shorter hours is, like, sort of rich and, like, feel, you know, people feel they have the kind of capacity you know, and then that also feeds into like funding sort of, you know, community centers and all kinds of things that give people the capacity to like make something of that time and feel that it's, it is like, you know, that they are actually liberated by, by that freedom. Okay. Anybody poised? Just, yep, yeah, there you go. Go. This, just, just a sec. Uh, hi. Yeah, my name's Harry. Um, I think a lot of the discussion tends to be sort of, uh, within national lines in this, and you alluded to the sort of complex role of MNCs. What do you think are the implications for inequality in income and wealth across countries, you know, where, you know, these jobs don't even exist to be displaced currently? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the big question for all sort of social policy and the left uh, in this century. Um, and it's essentially the same problem that arises with any kind of, you know, any kind of policy or any kind of attempt to kind of strengthen labor that tends to, yes, it tends to be national uh, in its focus. Um, I wish I had a better answer to it other than it's like, in principle, we have to be internationalist. You know, I'm, in principle, I'm for, you know, open borders and reparations to the colonized world and, you know, building something that's not just social democracy in one country. In practice, it's very difficult to do. Uh, I do think, you know, when we're, I mean, certainly when we're looking at, in this particular context of what I was talking about, uh, in terms of economic development, if we're looking at places that have been, you know, underdeveloped for, for so long, there's, there's actually, again, going back to this sort of basic income stuff, you see there's interesting, you know, work that's been done in places like Namibia is one of the most famous ones, where, you know, you can transfer a fair, you know, by rich country standards, very small amounts of money and really transform lives there. And that, of course, doesn't close the gap. It doesn't sort of make up the, for the sort of development of the world system that we have now. But it's at least a beginning of what I think are the kind of transfers, both of resources and of technologies, uh, to, the, you know, to the places that essentially have been systematically colonized and underdeveloped uh, throughout the history of capitalism. So I think we're coming close to the end. Let me just uh, ask you one question myself. Um, I wanted to take up the point you, you ended with about a labour politics of technology because that's sort of really what, what would drive people. And, and the third of your points was about expropriation and a number of times you said nationalisation. Now, there are areas of um, technology where that is a live issue for diplomats right now. Um, the question, for example, of who controls cyberspace, which has suddenly become topical. And if you talk to uh, diplomats from Western Europe, they'll tell you that the issue at the moment is whether the strange private amalgam that controls the internet should remain in place, or should they accede to the demands of Russia and China that it be nationalised? 
And I think that raises a complicated question for progressive people because whilst the arguments you make sound good, there can be worse things than the situation that we're currently in. And it's clear that autocratic governments have other agendas than the ones that you're talking about, and that's what's driving their desire to nationalise them. So there's a very concrete example where at the moment progressive people face the problem, should you be for nationalising the governance of the internet? And I wonder what you would say about that. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. Um, certain, I mean, the thing is, the internet as it exists now is very, you know, places like Russia and China already, and the United States in other ways, have very much, you know, exert certain kinds of authoritarian control over it. Uh, that is certainly, like, when I'm talking about nationalizations, I'm thinking more of some of the, sort of the platform capitalists, you know, your Facebooks and Googles and things like that, um, that are essentially so central to all of our lives and, and, or you know, kind of collect and organize so much of our information and know so much about us that for all the faults, and believe me, I do not really relish the prospect of the United States government uh, being in the position to, to control that, but basically they already have access to it anyway, and there's at least in principle the possibility of some democratic accountability. But as for the international governance of the Internet, that's much harder. I do come, I guess, and that is where sort of if possible, I like, I like the sort of more deregulated or anarchic version of, you know, the internet, although we've come a long way from the old internet of the 80s, but at least the idea that it can be decentralized in a way that it's not subject to either state or corporate control. And that should be, I think, the goal there, probably. And that gets to, you know, my sort of the, sort of like, in some ways, sort of the communist horizon of my politics. Nationalization, in some cases, I think, is something that we should still be talking about, but it's ultimately not what I'm interested in. Um, You know, it's like one, I mean, it's one thing if we're talking about the national rail service. I don't think we can just sort of like communally, you know, have communal grassroots control of the national rail. But like if we're talking about something like the Internet, um, then I think maybe we should still be thinking about uh, how these things, how we can sort of maintain autonomy and decentralization in networks like that. Thanks very much. Well, listen, I think we've heard a really fascinating series of arguments here. I mean, as I understood it, you started by setting out some of the different attitudes within the socialist tradition to these questions of technological change and automation. You then went through the historical record and raised some questions about what was actually happening in the present. And then you ended, as we've just been discussing now, with some of the issues of what a politics would look like that tries to address these things. Don't forget that... um, Peter's book is on sale outside and if you want to come up he'll be waiting here and he can um, put some uh, inscribe in the front cover but um, before we end can I just ask you to join me in thanking our speaker Peter Fraze.